Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Asset Allocation Report for September 23rd, 2023. I'm Donna O'Donnell. When we began the year, there was a general consensus that a recession was near. So far, the economy appears to have avoided a downturn. Over the past few months, several bi-weekly asset allocation reports covered various aspects regarding why the downturn has been avoided. This week, I'm joined by Confluence Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady to recap these reports and discuss any changes that have emerged since they were written. Bill, before we get started, why is recession forecasting so difficult? Well, Donna, each recession has its own characteristics. In my adult lifetime, I've lived through six recessions. Two were very deep, the 1981, 1982, and the 2007-2009 downturns. The pandemic recession was unlike any other I've seen. Very deep, but unusually short. The 2001 recession was so mild, most people didn't notice it. The 1990-91 recession might not have occurred without the Gulf War. I also saw a soft landing in the mid-1990s, so avoiding a recession is still possible. Do you still think we'll have a recession? I do. The yield curve has always been a reliable recession indicator, but with wide signaling variations. Recessions on inversion have occurred within eight months from inversion to as long as 20 months, with an average of about 15 months. Since the preponderance of curves inverted in July of 2022, we are still actually within range of the average. The conference board's leading indicators are well within recession ranges. At the same time, there is a bit of the emergency room doctor's response to the question, am I going to die, doc? To which the doctor says, inevitably, but not today. Since we can't accurately predict when the recession is likely to occur, we have, in our recent bi-weekly asset allocation reports, discussed why the recession hasn't occurred yet. These should be considered guideposts to signal when the odds of recession might be elevated. The first article you cite is the May 22nd report on new home sales. Why is this important? Well, the economy has proven to be less sensitive to rate hikes, and one of the key reasons is is that borrowers have locked in their borrowing costs well into the future. This is most plainly evident in housing. The majority of homeowners are sitting on mortgages well below current rates. This has led to a sharp decline in existing home sales and created a void in supply that new home construction is filling. Although it wasn't discussed in the article, companies did something similar. So only those who need to borrow today are affected, and so far, they have a small enough element of the economy, they haven't caused a dramatic slowdown in the economy. The next article is the green shoots of reindustrialization from July 2nd. What's the story here? One of our themes shortly after we started Confluence was that the U.S. was struggling to maintain its hegemonic status due to domestic tensions. Essentially, the losers from globalization and deregulation have been revolting. Adding to the trend has been the belligerent behavior of China and Russia, which have made it clear that the environment that we've seen since the fall of communism has come to an end. Of course, the pandemic played a role as well. This situation has triggered a bout of reshoring and nearshoring. The mantra of 1990 until recently was to offshore production to the lowest cost and most efficient area regardless of the potential geopolitical risk. That idea now has been mostly debunked. In response, we are seeing a building boom in U.S. industrial capacity. Some of it is being supported by industrial policy, tariffs by the Trump administration, subsidies by the Biden administration, but some of it is simply a reaction to perceived vulnerability of supply chains. This development likely has legs and will persist regardless of the business cycle. The third article was published on July 17th and talks about the benefits of higher interest rates. How does that fit in? One of the overlooked elements of higher government borrowing and interest rates is that there is a rising flow of interest income to households and businesses. We focused on households in this piece. 
Interest income, after being moribund for years, has started to rise as short-term interest rates increase. For the most part, this is an upper income phenomena. Less affluent households are net borrowers and thus are not positively affected by this development. Higher interest income probably doesn't support economic activity significantly, but it may prevent risk assets from declining as much as they otherwise would. Why? Because upper-income households tend to hold more of their wealth in equities, and the higher levels of cash rates give them the ability to buy more stocks. Fourth on the list is the employment situation of older workers. How is that important? Well, now, this is something we noticed during the pandemic. Walter Schneidel noted that pandemics tend to boost labor income because they tend to, sadly, shrink the labor force. During the Black Death, this occurred due to massive fatalities. Fortunately, COVID-19 was nowhere nearly as deadly as that event, but it did cause older Americans to leave the labor force. The disease put older Americans at risk and accelerated their departure from the labor force. The charts in the report show that the over 55 labor force and employment remain well below pre-pandemic trends. This exodus has kept labor markets tighter than they otherwise would have been. Our calculations suggest that in the absence of a pandemic, the current unemployment rate would be closer to 4.9%. An unemployment rate of that level would have likely led to lower wage growth and made the economy more sensitive to interest rate hikes. And the last cited article from September 11th, was about fiscal tightening. What's the story there? Well, this is where the greatest risks lie. The economy was supported by aggressive fiscal support from pandemic spending that was bolstered by various post-pandemic industrial policy programs. But one of the biggest factors was the moratorium on student loan debt. These borrowers seemed to assume that they would be relieved of these obligations and thus led to greater spending and borrowing. Now that servicing this debt has returned, we are more likely to see a reduction in spending from these borrowers. Of all the items we have noted recently, this one concerns us the most. In the economy, the deficit must rise every year to be additive to growth. The deficits are projected to grow slowly in the coming years, but the return of student loans could cause a near-term drop in the deficit and weaken the economy. To the extent that these borrowers have also taken on other obligations, we may see a drop in credit quality. We note that recently, delinquencies on auto loans and credit cards have increased, which may reflect stress in the household sector. In addition, there is potential for government shutdown, which could have an impact as well. After a few years of fiscal injections, a whiff of austerity could tip the economy into a downturn. So, do you think we will see a recession this year? Probably not, but the odds of one in the first half of next year is probably high. This is especially true if the FOMC continues to hike rates. And is there anything else we should note? Well, the geopolitical situation is fraught with risk. The war in Ukraine continues and China is clearly in turmoil. The European economy also seems to be struggling. We don't see a deep slowdown occurring, but there are enough gray swans, defined as events we can see but with uncertain effects, that it will be hard to see just a soft landing. Thank you, Bill. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Be aware that opinions or forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Donna O'Donnell.